Thank you, Alicia. Uh, well, if you haven't already, uh, please open a Bible to John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be in 18 through 27, which is what Alicia so wonderfully read for us already. Um, uh, one of the reoccurring statements of Jesus uh, in this famous upper room discourse that we're walking through together as a faith community is, um, and if you followed along in these last two and a half chapters, is his constant refrain and his continuing desire to comfort his disciples. And so you've seen this numerous times over and over again. Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And he sort of combats that troubled heart that they have with all these incredible promises that he makes to them. And so he says things like, you know, don't let your heart be troubled. I will return to you. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Um, I will come. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come and bring you to where I am. Or he says, my peace I give to you. My, piss, my peace I, uh, I, I bring to you. Or he says, uh, you will bear fruit and you will bear fruit that remains, you know, abiding and lasting fruit. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You know, he's like, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. Like, you know God. Um, he dishes out all these amazing, good promises that you and I are just like, yes, that'll, that'll preach, you know. But um, Jesus in our passage this morning, uh, he promises his followers something really um, uncomfortable, doesn't he? Uh, he promises his followers uh, the world's hatred. He promises them persecution. And so if we follow Jesus, Jesus is saying here to us, uh, we should have an expectation, you guys, an expectation that we will be hated and persecuted. Uh, he says that if we follow him in this life, that if you're going to follow Jesus in this life, you must realize that you're going to follow him into conflict. That's what he's saying. Um, I realize some of you this morning, like, really don't want to hear that. I mean, I'm guessing most of you probably don't want to hear that. Uh, you'd prob probably rather that I get to this section of the Upper Room Discourse and go, let's just skip that one, you know? And um, uh, this isn't really easy. This isn't cushy. Um, this isn't like a, a passage that says, you know, here's 10 ways the Bible tells you that you could be a better you, you know. And um, I guess this is part of the joy and the difficulty of being a church that um, values expository preaching of just walking through parts of Scripture because we land in places like this. And I hope you see this morning, though, that this passage, it's not really intended for you to feel all gloomy and like depressed, and it's not meant to be grim, you know. It's actually meant to encourage you. It's precisely because Jesus loved his disciples, and it's precisely that he loves you this morning, that's why he says it. Uh, he wants all of his followers to actually be prepared to endure, you know, this life of, of following after him. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus um, tells people, he's, he, he tells them to count the cost to follow him, and he says, it's just like, you know, if, if you went out and you decided you wanted to build a tower, you know, you don't just build a tower and not, you know, assess, do I have the resources, you know, do I have the ability to actually build a tower? Because he says, uh, it's going to be really embarrassing for you. People are going to mock you. You know, if you, if you go to build a tower and you just get to the foundation, you're like, wait, I, I didn't realize I couldn't do this. He says, people are just going to look at you and they're like, look at this, you know, idiot. You know, he just, he only could build a foundation, right? And he says, you want to count the cost of following me. I know all of you in this room, I'm guessing, I don't know anybody in this room who's ever built a tower, so maybe his parable doesn't really connect with you on a heart level. And so, I don't know, maybe Jesus would stand before you this morning 
And he would want to prepare you for following him. And he would say something like, you know, it's not like you'd ever, you know, decide I'm going to go on a road trip across the United States. And you don't sit there and just go for it, right? You have to count the cost. You have to go, do I have the money? Do I have a vehicle? Do I have a friend? You know, do I have maps? Do I even know where I'm going? Like you have to count the cost, right? You have to know, do I have the resources? Do I have the time off work? Because the worst thing that could happen is you get to Eastern Oregon and you run out of gas and you're like, oh shoot, I have no money. And your boss calls you and he's like, where are you, you know? And you have to sit down and count the cost, right? To even go on a road trip like that. Like you, this is so common sense. In the same way, this is kind of what Jesus is telling you. He's warning you about what it means to follow him. Because Jesus says that not that you might be hated. He doesn't say that you might be persecuted. He says you will be. He says when. And he says this so that we won't be surprised. That as we follow him, we realize uh, we're following him into conflict. And so our passage, I think, shows us two really big reasons why uh, we should expect this. But that also tells us how we should respond in the midst of this conflict that we experience. And so in verses 18 to 25, I think we get to see these two great reasons of why uh, the world will hate and persecute you if you follow Jesus. And before I, we even get to there, though, um, I just think it's worth saying, mo many of us would probably sit here and say, uh, we might be wondering, you know, why in the world, I guess, would the world hate or persecute Christians? I mean, just think about all the good you know, that Christianity has brought to the world. Think of all the good uh, that Christians have brought into the world. Like, why in the world would people persecute Christians? You know, I mean, think about, um, look at every single hospital, right? I mean, its origin and its root, it was started through Christianity and, and through people who professed faith in Christ. You know, I mean, look at the Good Samaritan, Providence, like all these things, they're all named after Christian things, right? Or even disaster relief efforts or nonprofit efforts, they're all like, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Red Cross, or even the educational system. I mean, look at the educational system. You look at Ivy League schools and their origin documents and, and what they say that they're all about. It's all rooted in Christianity, right? And so we look at those types of things, or we look at ministries that uh, Christians have offered to the poor, or, you know, like homeless shelters, or even how Christians at least should be law-abiding citizens, or they fight to protect people who are marginalized, right? The list could go on and on and on. And so for many of us, we go, I don't get it. Why would the world hate Christians? And I don't think the question could be answered sociologically. That's not what our passage tells us, but it's answered for two other reasons. It has everything to do with your citizenship. And the second thing, it has everything to do with who you serve. So first, the first reason we see here is in verses 18 through 19, and it has to do with your citizenship. Jesus says that you are not of this world. Look at me in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. Uh, so what we are seeing in this passage, you guys, is the inner workings, I guess, of two competing kingdoms, all right? You see here the kingdom of the world, and you see Jesus' kingdom, and they're competing kingdoms. And you must understand that when we say the kingdom of the world, the world, that's not a, a reference, if you will, to the material, right? It's not a reference to just creation or things in the world, and it's not a reference to people, 
Because we also know, you know, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, right? It's not talking about humanity, but what it means, this kingdom of the world or that you're not of the world, this is talking about a value system that is diametrically opposed to Jesus' kingdom, okay? It's, it's a system of the world, and these are competing kingdoms. One, Scripture would say, is a kingdom of light, and the other is a kingdom of darkness. And, and if you've put your faith in Jesus, if by grace you've put your faith in Jesus, then Scripture teaches that you have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, or the, out of the kingdom of the world, okay? And you have had your citizenship transferred to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of light, Okay? So there's a couple of scriptures I was going to throw up here on the screen for you. It says this. It says in Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. If you're a Christian, this is your reality, okay? 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So there's the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness, there's competing kingdoms. And one of our biggest issues today, I think, is that we've tried to create, as Christians, the kingdom of gray. The kingdom of gray. But that's not what we see here. There's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light, and we've really tried hard, I think, to create a kingdom of gray. But, but gray is still dark. It's not light. I mean, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that if we don't belong to Jesus, then we belong to this evil world, is what he said. And many of us who claim Jesus, I think we struggle with this like a ton. That's why these passages are hard for us. Because we want to have both Jesus and the world. We want to marry the kingdoms together. We want both light and darkness. We want to have the life and the benefits of following Jesus and we want the approval and the, the praise and the acceptance of the world. We want gray. We want to live in a gray kingdom. But, but your identity is that you don't belong to this world if you're a Christian, but now you belong to Jesus' kingdom. And so if you try to follow Jesus, and he, if he is not of this world, but if he instead is ushering in a new and different kingdom, then we should expect pushback. But if you try to follow Jesus, yet you, you root your identity in the world, then eventually you will just get swept away with, with the world, and eventually you're going to turn on Jesus. I mean, sure, you might redefine Jesus when you get to that point just to better suit you, or you might keep the parts of Jesus that you like about him. And I think, though, the moment that we do that, we don't love Jesus. We love some idol that we fashioned that we called Jesus, but, but we, don't, we don't do this with each other, even. I mean, just think about that. I mean, um, if, if you were talking to somebody else about me, okay, and you were like, oh, yeah, I know Josh really well. Josh, he's like five foot four. Uh, he's a really good volleyball player. He played volleyball in, in college. Um, he's a really good watercolor painter, like great eye for it, you know, like super good eye for it. He plays saxophone like a boss, okay? Like this guy, like you know, man, he's, he's great at saxophone and watercolor painting and volleyball, right? His name is, is Josh Howith, right? You can believe that about me, but you've just completely, that's just not me, I'm sorry. If you're looking to me to provide those things for you in life, you're going to be really disappointed, right? You, can't, you can believe that about me. You can even say that's me. You can, you can use my name and everything, uh, but, but all you have is my name. You don't really have me, right? The name is right, but you've created a whole different person. 
And we, we all know this intuitively, and if we're not careful, it's what we do with Jesus in order that we can live in this kingdom of gray. That's what we do. And so, in a way, we, we should expect disdain from the world because Jesus' kingdom, you guys, it doesn't conform to the kingdom of the world. And our world has always been suspicious of nonconformity. Always. I mean, the kingdom of light is the definition of nonconformity. I mean, if, if what is supposed to be conformed to is darkness. I mean, you know this. I mean, have you ever walked into a room that was dark and switched on a lamp and darkness just overtook that light? Has that ever happened to you? If that has, uh, you need a new lamp, right? Like, that, that's not how it works, right? I mean, the light never conforms to anything. It always pushes back the darkness, doesn't it? Things conform to the light. And in the same way, this is the image that we have here in a passage like this, okay? We, we, we don't understand the hatred of the world because I think so many times we've tried really hard to conform to it. And so we're shocked, really, at the very words of Jesus that the world will hate us and that we will experience the world's distaste for us because we rarely taste it. Well, let, let me just be really, really clear here at this point. Um, uh, we, we shouldn't, you shouldn't be experiencing hatred from the world because uh, you're a jerk, okay? Just being honest. Um, we, we shouldn't be, this is not saying the world will hate you because you lack compassion, Right? that you're really difficult to be around, or you don't love people or something. Okay, that's not at all what this is talking about, but it is promising you that the world will hate you because we live under the good rule and reign of King Jesus. He's a very different king. I just want to point out two examples in life, in history, I think that um, kind of embody what this is talking about, how, how we're not of the world, but we, we live in a different world under the rule of King Jesus. Um, uh, one of the most famous, the most famous Surgeon General in history was C. Everett Koop. And uh, he was appointed under the Reagan administration in 1981 to be the Surgeon General of our country. Okay? Um, many of you were not around uh, for this time. But um, uh, he is the most famous uh, because he worked really hard. He had made so many great advances and efforts in working to prevent AIDS and, and fight the AIDS epidemic. He also fought against abortion, as well as advocating for the rights of disabled children. Okay, so he did so much good in the world, but here's what happened. Uh, in 1981, when he was appointed by Reagan to be the Surgeon General for our country, uh, all the conservative people in the country loved him and like sang his praises. And all the more liberal people in the country hated him. And the reason was this, he fought against abortion. Like he fought for the rights of the unborn. And so conservatives were like, this is our guy. They loved him, right? Liberal people, they hated him, okay? But here's what happened. Later on in the 80s, he was one of the people who primarily uh, was at the forefront of discovering this AIDS epidemic that was breaking out. And the AIDS epidemic at that time was primarily uh, revolving around the community of gay men. And so he was like, hey, we've got to do something about this. These people are suffering. We need to fight against this and look for cures and things like that. And so he was at the forefront of that. And all of a sudden, what happened? Conservative people were just, they hated him. So they're like, oh, homosexuality is bad, and so we shouldn't help these people. That's what, literally what they thought. And all of a sudden, the, the other people who once hated him were now, like, advocating for him. But see, all this guy was doing, see Everett Koop, was he was literally just trying to follow Jesus in this world, in his job. That's what he was doing, right? 
Uh, Coop lived a life in such a way that he didn't perfectly conform to the culture. And so at different moments of his life, depending on what he was doing and what he was living for and what he was advocating for, the world hated him. Why? Because he wasn't of this world. But even uh, if you go further back in history, uh, you can get to a, um, a historical figure that many of you maybe are familiar with, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And during the, the world wars, during uh, Nazi Germany, as they were oppressing so many Jewish people and others uh, under the form of fascism, right? Uh, he started this underground seminary, and from this underground seminary that he began uh, came a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, which maybe some of you have read. If not, I really recommend it to you, okay? But, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was persecuted and he was killed because of, of uh, he stood up in that culture and he says, this is not right. People are made in the image of God, all people, and this is not God's desire. This is not God's plan. And so he carried the Christian faith with him that exemplified that Jesus was for all people. And so what you have under something like fascism was anytime you see fascism, it's where someone elevates a race which literally oppresses anybody that's not of that race. They say, we are the best race. Everyone else is not as good as us. And so fascists hate Christianity, true Christianity, because Christianity says that we are all made in God's image. We are all made in God's image. God loves all people. In fact, God's actually creating a multi-ethnic family. And so for many of us, I talk, we could talk about fascism in this room, and not many of you, I think, will ever maybe be oppressed for, for holding out that vision of Christianity to people. That sounds good to people. But if you live out in a place like Oregon, in a secular culture like we have, we, we elevate something like personal freedom in a place like Oregon, okay? And so we say in a place like uh, Oregon, I decide what I do, I'll do what I wanna do, no one can tell me what to do, I am the ruler of my own life and my own choices and you better not tell me what to do. And this is what our culture elevates. And it, it hates Christianity, the true message of Christianity, because Christianity says what? The same thing, that we are all made in God's image. That sounds great, but that also means that we are his. We are his. He is our owner. We are his creation. And so when we come to Jesus, we are even further told that we are not our own, but we are bought at a price. And what was that price? What was the blood of Jesus? So in a sense, it, these are examples that show you there will always be hostility no matter where you live and what time you live. There's always going to be a price. There's always going to be a cost. Jesus is telling you, you should expect hatred from the world because we belong to a different kingdom, you guys. We've been placed in another kingdom. Jesus didn't join your kingdom. Like you joined his kingdom through, through, by his grace. You've, you've joined his kingdom when you placed your faith in him. And when we join his, guys, we experience hatred because we don't conform to the values of the world. But the values of Jesus are what we're seeking to conform to. And no matter what culture you're in, eventually you're going to experience a level of hatred and disdain. But, but the second reason that you see here is, is, a, is kind of a different reason why you would be hated and persecuted. Well, it's because of Jesus. It's because you're Jesus's. Look with me in 20 through 25. What does it say? It says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the world that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause, which is a quote from the Psalms. So our second reason we're given for why the world will persecute followers of Jesus, it's found in verse 21, verse 23, verse 24, and the bottom line is this. It says, people hate God. Absolutely what it says. Therefore, the world will not only hate you, but they will seek to silence you or shame you or get rid of you or at minimum get rid of your influence. In other words, they will persecute you, Jesus says. Why? Because you love and serve the one whom they hate. See, Jesus, pro Jesus promises his followers that they will be persecuted. Why? Because he was persecuted. And we belong to him. So if you follow Jesus, you are Jesus's. He refers to himself as a master, and we are his servants. So he likens our relationship to him as servant-master to his relationship that he has with his father. And he says in verses 23 and 24 that the world has hated both he and his father, and the world has sought to put an end to his life. Therefore... We should expect that if the world treated Jesus this way, then we too, as servants of Jesus, will be treated in the same way. The point is this. The, this, the world will seek to persecute you. Why? Because they persecuted Jesus. Well, why did they persecute Jesus? Why did they seek to silence him and shame him and, and put an end to him? Well, he tells you, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin, and now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the words that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. What does this tell you? Why do they persecute Jesus? Why do they hate Jesus? Because his words and his works, because of his teaching and his miracles. That's why. This is, what, this is what's happening. Here's what's happening. Jesus came, Jesus revealed God through his radical teaching and his powerful miracles. That's what he's saying. And those things pointed to his divinity, which exposed people's sin. And when it exposed their sin, it exposed their guilt. But when they were, had their guilt and their sin exposed to them, they didn't want it washed. They didn't run to Jesus seeking out forgiveness. They didn't look to Jesus as a refuge for healing, but they looked at him as a divine force to resist. You see this. They're, therefore, it says they, they hate God, Jesus says. They didn't even have a good reason to do so. You see, Jesus, what, what happens is this. Jesus brings love into the world. And what does it do? It reveals our lack of love. Jesus brings utter humility into the world. And what does it do? It reveals our pride. Jesus brings a life of sacrifice into the world, and what does it do? It reveals our self-centeredness. This will be on the screen for you. It's a simple quote. Dorothy Sayers said it in a poem that she wrote years ago. She said this. She said, Jesus had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. Jesus had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. She, she's not saying that we were beautiful and then Jesus entered into the world and all of a sudden we became ugly. It's not what she means. What she is saying is that Jesus is so beautiful that it actually revealed our ugliness. It's, it's, like, it's like this. I don't know why, but I used to really be into like wearing white t-shirts. I think everybody was. You know? And so we'd go and but you buy that package of like, you know, five white t-shirts. It's like ridiculously priced for you know what you're getting, okay? 
And I would wear these t-shirts. I don't need more. I've moved past it. I'm hoping it comes back someday, okay? But I would wear these white t-shirts, all right? And we all know this, you know, factually about white things. Eventually, they're not as white as they once were, correct? They become way more beige or something than they were white. But I would wear these white shirts, and I'm like, this is pretty white. And eventually, something would happen. And I was like, you know what? It's been a couple years. It's about time for some new white shirts, okay? So I'd go, you know, to the, the local store. I'd buy some, you know, another pack of five white tees, bring it home. And I always loved seeing it out on my bed next to my old white tees. And it was in that moment that I realized every time those were not white. I thought my old T-shirts were white, but no, they were like, pit stained and yellow and gross and dirty. They were like brown, basically, okay? But I thought they were white. But it was in bringing about these like bleached, perfectly white cotton t-shirts and laying them next to the other ones that it revealed how gross and dirty and brown my other white shirts were that I thought were white, okay? Jesus is kind of like that pack of five new white t-shirts, basically. That's what Dorothy Sayers is saying. That he doesn't make those other shirts ugly, he reveals it because he's so lovely, he's so perfect, he's so beautiful. And so Jesus is saying, I came into this world with my words and actions and it pointed out, it revealed everyone's guilt and their sin and it either caused those people to run to him as a refuge, a place of healing and forgiveness, losing your life in him, joining his kingdom, or it brings about a hatred of Jesus. A hatred of Jesus because he's a threat to your life. Well, there's two objections, I think, within this whole thing that I, you might be sitting here with. One, if you're not a Christian, uh, you might be sitting here. And first of all, I'm really glad you're here. You're really welcome here. And you might be thinking, I don't hate God. Okay? And I totally know what you mean. You might have ver there's very few people, I think, maybe on this planet who would just come out and say, I hate God. Right? Something really has to have happened to your life. Maybe you're like, I've never said that. And you might actually feel that in some way you're, you like Jesus or you're interested in Jesus. But I propose to you that if that is your approach to Jesus, you're like, I don't hate God. He's fine. Jesus is okay. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to follow him. Um, I just propose to you that you've really misunderstood him. You've misunderstood Jesus. That, that we've adopted, if you're in that place, we've adopted a view of Jesus that he can somehow exist and be real, and we can exist, and we can do our own thing, and, and there's no sort of like overlapping. That he can just be fine, you know, he's Jesus, he was great, you know, and, and I'm pretty great. You know, I'm going to do my thing, he do his thing, maybe we'll chat once in a while, like we're cool together once in a while maybe. Uh, you get mad at him for whatever reason, right? But you view Jesus as a sort of really disconnected figure from your life. But I'm telling you, if Jesus is merely just a nice idea to you, and you like bits and pieces of your interpretation of his teaching, then what Jesus will be saying to you is that you haven't really heard him. You haven't really encountered him. Because when we do, when you are encountering him and all of his holiness and all of his beauty, your sin and your guilt is exposed. And in that moment, there's no middle ground. You either run to Jesus for forgiveness or you wall up because you see him as a threat to your life. See, the only, the only reason, guys, why the world isn't divided between people who just utterly love Jesus and people who utterly hate Jesus is because people don't listen. We don't see because when we do see and when we do actually hear, we, we, we don't want Jesus or we, have, we either do want Jesus. We won't want him because he's a, as a threat to our life and he's threatening the way that we desire that we want to live or you submit your life to Jesus. 
because you see that he's a way better king. And therefore, anybody who follows Jesus in this world, Jesus promises will be persecuted because in a real sense, you're a threat. But secondly, you might be sitting here as a Christian and you're like, I, I'm kind of confused. Jesus promises persecution, but I don't really feel like I'm persecuted. And I just say, you have to ask yourself why. Why is that? I mean, just, I mean, just most basic foundation here. Um, do people that you're around even know that you're a Christian? Or is that something that you kind of keep hidden within you? Because if Jesus is central to your life and they don't know, then just on a foundational level, you're being disingenuous. If he's central to your life and you're, you're hiding him, then, then, then you're, you're hiding who you are. Or he's not central. And, and I get it. Some people, I think you, this might be you. Maybe you're like, you know what? I love Jesus. He's central to my life. But I'm just so terrified that um, when I talk to people, there's just these two questions that I feel like I'm going to get asked. And I don't know the answer to it. Okay? And I totally understand that. And so I just want to encourage you. I'm serious. Write down those questions. Go research them. Find sufficient answers, because there's wonderful, sufficient answers out there. And then get those answers, and then go and follow Jesus. You don't have to know everything. But at the same time, if, if you just feel like, I need to know a little bit more about this thing, then do that, but go and faithfully follow Jesus if he's really central to your life. Or secondly, maybe you say, I'm not persecuted, I'm confused. Well, it could actually be because you are so trying to align yourself to the kingdom of the world, that people see no evidence that Jesus is actually the true and better king of your life. You're not experiencing that. And so you're aligning yourself, trying to marry this gray kingdom that just doesn't really even exist. Or you might not ever, guys, you might not ever experiencing persecution to the form of imprisonment or the form of getting beaten or even dying at the stake, so to speak. So when we pray for the persecuted church here on Sundays, it's kind of difficult for us sometimes to, to understand and equate ourselves to those people. But you might, that might not ever be your story, but I think we must fight to understand in our Western individual self-centered minds that when we come to faith in Jesus, he actually does forgive us and he restores us to God. But then what does he do? He turns us around and he introduces us to a family. As we are family. Jesus, we are told in scripture, is our older brother and we have a heavenly father. We have been brought into a new family and we are joined now to the body of Christ. This isn't just me and Jesus together following I'm not just following him individually in my life. I'm a part of this family. I'm a part of the wider church here on earth. And just like anybody or any family, when one part of your body suffers, when one person in your family suffers, everyone feels it. You know what I mean? Like I go up to people all the time. I'm like, how are you doing? And people will say, oh, my mom is going through this. My sister's going through this. And I don't go, no, I asked you how you're doing. I don't do that. No, because I get it, right? That's family. So when, when something's happening in your family, you feel it, right? Or, or you know, if, if you break your toe, you don't go, that's, that's not a big deal. It's just my toe. It's just isolated to my toe, right? No, your whole body, like, suffers, right? It experiences it. This is the vision of Christianity. So when we read a passage that says, you will be persecuted, and I read about the persecuted church, I want to know what's going on. I want to pray for them because that's me. That's my family. We have family all over the world. You might not be feeling it individually at the time, but we should be feeling it universally. 
So this might be hard to swallow, but, but just like Jesus said, guys, he, he said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. See, Jesus is unlike other masters. He's just completely unlike other masters because most masters, most people in a position of power, what do they do? They try to get their servants to do all the work that they don't want to do. They, they go out and they make their servants suffer so that they can be at ease, right? But we take heart. Why? Because Jesus is unlike any other master. What does he say? He says, follow me. Follow me into this conflict. I think about this every time I go into a parking lot with my children. I say, hey, kids, follow me. And what I don't mean is, hey, go scout it out, you know, go ahead of me. Right? No, I say, stay close, stay behind me, because as I'm walking through that parking lot, I want, if anything bad's going to happen, I want it to happen to me first, right? I want to I take the, the, the brunt of the blow, basically. And this is what we have in Jesus as our master. He says, follow me, I will go ahead and I will suffer the worst suffering the world's ever seen on the cross, but then every form of suffering after me will just be a shadow of that. He, he suffers worse than we ever will. And so this is this uncomfortable promise of Jesus, that we will follow him into this life of conflict. And so we're left with this question, like, how are we going to respond to all this? Am I just going to be aware? How am I going to respond? And we see it in verse 26 and 27. It says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You've been with me from the beginning. And yes, this is talking primarily about the 11 disciples, but we fast forward in chapter 17, and Jesus, we see him praying for all of his followers. And so we know even a passage like this applies to us. Guys, we, we've seen in this passage that we are not of the world, that the world will hate us and seek to persecute us, but we look here, and we see something really interesting. That it that most of us, as we, we think about these thoughts, and we think about these things, we, we hear these promises, they'll probably want us to recoil. But our response isn't to, to dish back hatred. We see we're not of the world, but we're actually called to be for the world. You see that? Jesus says here, we are not of the world, but we are for the world. Because we are for Jesus, and Jesus is for the world, and if Jesus is for the world, then we are for the world if we're bearing witness about him. We see that Jesus isn't even making a suggestion here. He's saying that we will bear witness to the world. But guys, you see, we'll never drive forward in love for Jesus and in love for the world until Jesus is your greatest love. But not only that, you will never have the fear cast out of your heart until the perfect love of Jesus is received in your life and it casts out fear. See, in, in fact, fear only reigns if you have everything to lose and something less significant in your life to gain. There's a famous quote that's going to be here on the screen. It's from a martyred missionary, Jim Ellie. He says, he is no fool which gives that which he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's had the fear driven out of his life. See, when we have gained Christ and we've received his perfect and abiding love that will never fade, no matter what kind of day or week that you're having, no matter how faithful you feel like you're been, you've been, this will dramatically change your posture towards the world. Do you see, when you've gained Jesus, when you've gained Christ, 
You realize that you have gained in Jesus, what you have gained in Jesus far surpasses what the world offers to you so that you are way less tempted by its opposition and what it's holding out for you. But you will also be for the world. Why? Because you will see that the world, whatever that is in your eyes, that was you. That was you. And you did nothing to earn or transfer yourself out of it, but Jesus entered into the world on this rescue mission and victoriously defeated death and sin and Satan on the cross through the empty grave, and he called your name, guys. He called you out. He opened your eyes. He opened your ears. He softened your heart, and he says here in verse 19 that you are not of this world. Why? Because I chose you out of the world. You are saved by grace, your faith in Jesus. It's grace. When that grace wraps around your heart, guys, that won't puff you up. That won't make you some elitist, judgmental person towards the world. Because you'll see that that was you. So that'll drive you forward in love for the world, bearing witness about Jesus. Because you will remember that whoever it is that you're afraid of was at one point you. You see, so often, persecution and hatred from the world, I think it makes us want to withdraw. It makes us want to toss back persecution. It makes us want to toss back hatred and all these things. We see it all the time, but that's not the call, you guys. It's not how we respond. It's a call to go into the world, not in hate, but bearing witness of Jesus. And was Jesus full of hate? No. This is our call to be for the world. How can we do it? How can you do it? How can you respond in this way? We need help. And, and you see that you have it here. You see, you'll never be alone. Jesus promises you this. I just read it. The Holy Spirit is present with you. Is he not? He says, the Spirit I will send, he will be with you. I will never leave you. I mean, it's really amazing. I was uh, reading again this week in the book of 2 Timothy, which is the last letter Paul ever wrote, okay? He was persecuted. He was on trial, and he went to his death, okay? And in chapter 4, which is the last chapter of the last book that Paul ever, ever read or wrote, sorry, um, he's d talking about how he's on trial in Rome, okay? This is what he said. He says, at my first hearing when I was on trial, everyone deserted me. Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, and I was saved from the lion's mouth. I was saved from the lion's mouth. But then he says of the ones who deserted him, he says, let it not be held against them. He basically mirrors what you see Jesus doing, right? See, Paul experienced these verses that we're, we're reading here in John in his very life, in the midst of persecution. And what does he see? He says, people abandon him. But Jesus never did, and he promises you this morning that as you follow him into this life, even if it means conflict, that you will never be alone, that he will never leave you. And how can you be sure of that? You're like, how can I even know? Well, we, we, we look to the cross, you guys. Because at the end of his life, Jesus, just like Paul, was on trial. And what happens? Everyone abandoned him, did they not? Everyone abandoned him and, and fled but you would say, well, no, he, he had his father. Well, no, he didn't even have his father. Because what happens? He's dying on a cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, everyone deserted Jesus. Ultimately, finally, he was utterly alone. 
But you and I, we don't have to experience that same type of thing because Jesus, guys, he received the loneliness that we deserve so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we know that we will never be alone no matter who has turned their back on us. No matter who has, you know that you will never be alone. Do you see it? You are sent out into a life of conflict, but Jesus, he's gone before you, guys. You are sent out from a place of victory, not sent out trying to achieve it. Jesus achieved that for you, and now in his victory, we go and we testify to how amazing he is in our own lives. I want to end with this um, story uh, that I just think it's beautiful. Um, There's a um, former missionary named Brother Andrew, and he did amazing work in Asia, um, all over the place, and in Russia and stuff like this. And um, he would just smuggle Bibles into places. And uh, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to literally put it on the dashboard as I'm crossing the border, and I'm just going to pray that they don't, they don't see the Bibles. And he did. People just, God answered the prayers, and people didn't see the Bibles. He was bringing in these closed countries that would just not allow Bibles into their country. And so he tells this story in his book, The Calling. He says, we were planning to smuggle one million Bibles into China. Yes, I didn't, I, you know, misspeak. One million. One million Bibles. One million Bibles into China, Okay. One million, it's a lot. And uh, he was wanting to be sure that the believers in this country realized the immensity of the task and that they were willing to accept the risks of what was going to happen. And so he sent this guy, Joseph, who was a Chinese team member of his, to meet with five key house church leaders. And so this guy, Joseph, goes and he meets with these key house church leaders And he has this really long list of questions he's going to ask them to make sure they're ready for this. And he asks them, Joseph asks these guys, do you know how much space one million Bibles takes up? And uh, all five of these people replied, oh, we have already prepared storage places for these. And Joseph continued, do you know what could happen to you if you were caught with even a portion of these Bibles? Like just a portion of them. Do you know what would happen to you? And he said, Joseph, um, all five of us have been in prison for Jesus. All together, we've spent 72 years in jail for Jesus. We are willing to die if that means that a million brothers and sisters can have a copy of God's word in their hands. And Joseph, he, he writes, with tears in his eyes, just folds up the rest of his paper. He need any of his other questions asked. He just puts it away. I think that perfectly embodies this, you guys. They've experienced so much hatred, so much persecution, but it didn't cause them to withdraw. It caused them to move forward into the world, being for the world, with a broken heart that other people would come to saving faith in Jesus. Guys, these guys get it. They're not surprised by the conflict. They've been through the fire of persecution, and it didn't cause them to be driven by fear, but it drove them forward in faith into the world. And so whether it's risking our life or risking just our reputation, following Jesus and bearing witness about him and what he has done, guys, it requires courage. Because when we follow Jesus, we follow him into conflict. And I recognize that there's some of you this morning who've decided to follow Jesus and maybe you've never heard this and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what I was signing up for. I didn't count the cost. Um, And I I really hope this morning that somehow you're encouraged by this and that you really do see Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer you. 
And there's somebody in this room, I'm sure, that are really discouraged right now because you're feeling beat up. But I hope you see that you're not alone. Jesus is with you, and he's, he's walked the path before you. He didn't say, hey, go do this for me while I sit comfortable on my throne. No, he left it and walked the path before you, and he's never going to leave you. But, but I also trust that there's some of you in this room who are like, you know what? I don't know. I love the kingdom of gray. And it is my prayer this whole week that you would see there's no gray kingdom and that you would follow Jesus wholeheartedly, not being a jerk about it, but, but you would exemplify his life no matter what that might cost you. See, I'm not calling us to be obnoxious, you guys. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are you when others persecute you. But he doesn't say, blessed are you when others persecute you for being obnoxious. Does he? For being a jerk. He says, blessed are you when others persecute you for what? Righteousness sake. For following me. I'm not calling us to be obnoxious, guys, but I'm calling us as a church to follow Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we are promised that we're all going to follow him into some form of conflict. But, but he is so worth it. And I'm telling you, the testimony of millions of people who have gone before you and followed him faithfully into that conflict would stand before you this morning and say, he is worth it. He's so worth it. If you would just pray with me.